All right, welcome to Making the Argument. Before we get started, I have a very important announcement. We have a brand new deal with GoodRanchers.com. That's right. If you go into Good Ranchers and you use promo code Nick and you sign up for one of their subscriptions, you're not only going to get $15 off, but do you remember the old deal where you got two pounds of ground beef with each order? Well, we just upped the game. That's right. You can choose top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon now. Every single order you get on that subscription is going to come with free. Top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon. You get to choose which one if you use promo code Nick. And again, $15 off on top of that. That's a savings of $480 in meat by signing up for one of those subscriptions. Not to mention the fact that if you are looking for a gift for someone that is impossible to shop for, you can go on to GoodRanchers.com and get one of their brand new gift boxes. Now, this is a limited time only offer. It's part of their overall Black Friday special. So go on to GoodRanchers.com to get more details. Sign up for promo code Nick and to get that deal and let's get on with the show. You should definitely trust the experts. At least that's what we've been told repeatedly. In fact, anytime someone comes on and makes a particular statement, you'll oftentimes hear somebody automatically reply with, well, I didn't know you had a degree in X or whatever it happens to be. So there's this idea that there's a certain group of experts out there and we should listen to them. Well, on today's episode, we're actually going to talk about what actually constitutes expertise. How do you gain expertise? Should you trust the experts? And 20 times, 20 times where the experts got it horribly wrong. Believe me, you're going to want to hear this. It's a combination of shocking and hysterical. All of this coming up on this episode. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Making the Argument. Like I said last episode, if you haven't already, head down to the description of this podcast episode and join us on Volley. We would love to hear from you what one of these 20 examples stands out to you as, I don't know, shocking. Because there are a couple. But thank you again for joining us. We look forward to having you. And let's get started. All right. As always, your host, Nick Freitas, member of the House of Delegates. Other than that, reasonably good guy. My beautiful bride, Tina, queen of the bees. Hello, everyone. Then we have our resident historian and political prognosticator, Christian Hines. Hey. And then our producer of producer, Nicholas Hamilton, the good Hamilton, the one that does not like central banking. That's correct. Nick, what is an expert? I am so glad you asked that. I know. That. I'm so glad you asked that. Oh, oh my gosh. We happen to have uh, a Marion Webster you know, website open right now. Are they, are they experts? To the, I, I guess so. That's actually a great question. <laughs> so Marion Webster says the definition of expert one with the special skill or knowledge representing mastery of a particular subject. So, and I think that most of us, when we think about an expert, that's that's kind of what we're thinking. Seems generally. reasonable. Seems reasonable. Uh, but there's all these heuristics that we use. We, we've used the term heuristic before, but essentially within economics or within anything. Heuristics, think of it as kind of like a shortcut, right? So let me give you a quick example, right? When you guys went to college, you didn't research every single college on the planet, right? Yourself. You talked to people that had gone there before. You looked at various things that would provide you some indication based off of your personal preferences, et cetera, right? Those were heuristics you used to make a decision, to make an informed decision. Well, we do the same thing with respect to expertise. So if someone has a PhD in a particular subject, we generally think of them as an expert within that field. Um, if someone has a great deal of experience. Uh, so for instance, Elon Musk. Elon Musk does not have a degree in engineering, right? He has like a bachelor's of arts, I think, in physics, which I was shocked. I didn't know you could sure. get a BA in physics. And I, and I think he's got a, a bachelor's of science in economics. But a lot of the work that he does, I mean, has to do with like high level engineering. We want to come back and say, well, Elon Musk doesn't know anything about it. He's not, he's not an expert in a particular field, or he's not an expert within this industry because he doesn't have a business degree, right? So we, we recognize that someone can be an expert in a field without necessarily having like, you know, a, a particular degree status or conveyed upon them by an institution, right? And so that, that's an important distinction. And then you have some people that have both, right? They have a lot of formal education within a particular topic, but they also have a lot of practical experience within a field as well. You know, and a lot of times we look at that as, as a good combination of factors. Um, I know a lot of people that would take issue with the idea of describing experience as different from education. That's why we talk about it as formal education, like within the classroom, within a university system, et cetera. So I think, we all, I think we're all pretty comfortable with those as, as definitions yeah. of experts. Now, one of the things that I find is interesting, and actually Christian's going through his master's degree right now, 
Soon I uh, will become an expert. Soon he will be he will be an expert uh, historian, according to academia. But but here's what's interesting: um, even somebody that has a PhD within like within the field of history, if you look at how they got their PhD, you don't get your PhD from necessarily having a, a wide array of information of history in general. It's usually because you do your doctorate thesis on something very very specific. And typically, correct me if I'm wrong, Christian, typically with a PhD program, they're looking for you to to tackle a particular issue from a very like unique position, yes. you're not just regurgitating what everyone else has already written. So you've had to do this even for your master's that you're working on. You, you have to like really narrowly focus on a particular area too, not just broad. Oh, yeah. Every single paper is like super, super specific. There's nothing that's like in general, you know, tell, you know, talk to us about you know, World imperialism. Yeah, yeah. Instead, I would talk about, you know, the Russian invasion of Afghanistan in 1979 and how that's an act of imperialism yeah. or something like that. Like, like there's so and, and that's just in history. Right. But I do think that the same principle largely applies to other fields. My father is a college professor. Yeah. And um, I believe his doctorate thesis was about the lottery system in Louisiana. It wasn't about lotteries in general. It wasn't about the economics of the yeah. state of Louisiana. It was specifically about one topic. Yeah. And, you know, the the late 1980s, early 1990s, the lottery system in Louisiana. And and yet by our standards, we would say, well, he has a PhD. He teaches business marketing. Therefore, he is an expert when we talk about marketing in general. And I do think he's actually a genuinely very intelligent person, but that doesn't mean that that, and I don't think he himself would claim that like he knows everything about economics yeah. in general. He knows a very specific subset, uh, you know, segment of that when it comes to specific types of marketing, and yeah. that's what he teaches. Well, and I think, and that's the important distinction we want to talk about. And and it's and you can say the same thing about private sector expertise. So somebody could be a very very successful business owner within a particular industry, um, and and that would make them like. Uh, let's do a perfect example of this. One, one president that I don't like very much, Republican president Herbert Hoover. So Herbert Hoover was an an expert within the mining industry, like when it came to understanding like where to mine, you know, you know how to do it, how to get it to market, like all the different logistics. He was an expert in those fields and he was very good at surrounding himself with other experts in order to create, you know, an entrepreneurial endeavor. Well, a lot of people looked at that as like, oh gosh, this is a guy that really understands the economy. Okay, well, he did within his narrow field of the economy, but when he got in there as president and tried to micromanage the economy, people always talk about Herbert Hoover like he was hands-off. He was actually he was actually one of the first presidents in United States history that you know, drastically intervened in the economy at the federal level and caused a lot of problems for it. And that was counterintuitive yeah. to people because, no, you're an economic expert. You're one of the richest people in the world. You're a success. That doesn't mean his expertise see, understands a broad range of economic principles. Yes. I feel like the, that we see this a lot, like, in our day-to-day -day lives. So, 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 like, an example that I could give is, like, a real estate agent might be an expert in the Northern Virginia markets, but yeah. they don't know anything about the Shenandoah Valley. Yeah. They couldn't sell a house there because it's a completely different environment. There's not really a whole lot of apartments, mostly farmhouses and stuff like that. Completely different environment. But like on a broader scale, in, insofar as like, you know, things that our audience would care about on a day-to-day -day basis, because it's part of the reason that they listen to this show, like think about all of the experts that go to like Davos every year mm -hmm. or are part of like the World Economic yeah. Forum. And these are people that have made millions or in some cases billions in investments. And so therefore we say, oh, these people are geniuses. They're they're experts when it comes to economics. They're experts when it comes to the marketplace. But then they'll go out there and they'll say things that would, quite frankly, their ideas about how the economy should be run or formulated or operated or managed would lead to catastrophic disaster, mm -hmm. quite frankly. I, I, I think of all of those people, and we've done episodes on this podcast talking about the World Economic Forum. All these people, and, and some of these people that, that, that are hailed as experts, um, we've actually, I believe that you've collected some quotes from them on that 20, you know, the, the, um, the list of 20 people. There's, there's some people out there that are geniuses when it comes to investing, mm -hmm. But suddenly when they make pronouncements about, well, this is what policy should look like yeah. from, an, from a, a fiscal or monetary or just broadly economic viewpoint, suddenly 
their record as an investor is supposed to carry weight insofar as what sort of laws should be passed and regulations should be adopted, when in reality what they're calling for is just managed markets that just more central planning, basically. But therefore, because they're an expert, they know what they're talking about. And and th- this is the problem with with it's it's taken many different forms. This is the problem with what people like to call like scientific socialism. Yeah. Or um, you know, or, or a form of meritocracy that's not simply put the most qualified people in the best positions, but put the most qualified people in positions that will then control everything. That's not necessarily a meritocracy because you're st- it's a form of central planning. Because at the end of the day, you could be Rockefeller or you could be Carnegie or you could be Buffett or you could be Bezos or whoever these people are, but their individual knowledge does not it might might be greater than any one person. Yeah. Warren Buffett might be the single most intelligent investor in the entire world. Yeah. But his knowledge pales in comparison to the collective knowledge of billions of people making their own private decisions. And that's the that's the problem with central planning and I think that that needs to be pointed out because the reason that we're talking about the whole flaws with don't trust the experts is because ultimately what we're trying to do in today's episode is dismantle one of the strongest arguments that people put forward in favor of central planning. Well, and I think that, and this, this goes into, so all of that's makes perfect sense. And it goes into the whole idea of understanding bias, right? Because everybody there, there's this idea that, Oh, well, no, they have a PhD in this. It's objective. Or they're a scientist. Neil deGrasse Tyson is kind of famous for, for, kind of like suggesting that the way the country really should be run is that we just go with whatever the science says. And a bunch of people are coming forward going, wait a second, (laughs) you know, scientists don't approach a topic or a subject matter completely devoid of bias. Right. They have their own biases with respect to the value of certain data. They have biases with respect to what they think would be a favorable outcome. If you're an expert that works for Pfizer... Yes. You have a bias. <laughs> yeah. And and that and that's the whole so understanding the bias is really important here. And and again, there's some people think, you know, you know, all these experts stink essentially. We shouldn't listen to them. What no, what we should do is understand what they're saying, why they're saying it. And one of the most important components here is because you have you have public sector experts, you have private sector experts, right? So like Warren Buffett would be considered more of a private sector expert. A public sector expert would be considered someone like the head of the CDC, right? Or, or Dr. Fauci, like these are considered public sector or government sector experts. And what, we, what we've seen, and I think what a lot of people have gotten frustrated with is this bias component that enters into it, where now, if this person is, if I have two people, and theoretically, both of them have an argument to be made for why they're subject matter experts on, in a particular field, but one of them is saying the government approved thing and one of them is not. Which one gets banned from Twitter? Which one gets thrown off of YouTube? Which one gets expelled from the public space for, for hurting or for damaging public safety? Right. That's, that's the part where a lot of us look at this and go, wait a second. You are now crossing the boundary. If your expert is as good as you think they are, then not only were the, were the data um, you know, reflect reality, but you shouldn't need to silence everybody else. Yeah. Now, now the counter argument to a lot of this is, well, people put out really bad information and a lot of times people have a tendency to want to believe bad information. And so that's how we got to protect against. To which, again, my response to that is, I, I will admit that is true. I will admit there are people out there that are highly charismatic that say a lot of stupid things, right? Does that mean we should shut them down because they're, they're wrong or inaccurate? And then who gets to decide who's wrong and inaccurate? Because I think AOC says a lot of dumb things. But I wouldn't dream of saying, and that's why she should be kicked off the internet. But they don't have a problem doing the same thing. And I would say that to, to me, that's a real, that's a huge hit on your, quote, expertise. If the only way that your, your thesis or your theory can win out in society is if you shut down everybody else. And... I wanted to say one thing yeah. is that I, I do feel like there is also a component here uh, that you have to consider when you're looking at some of these experts is what type of incentives do they have yeah. to come to a certain conclusion? So, for instance, we've got Pfizer and Dr. Fauci, and he's basically saying you don't get to know whether or not I get, you know, my my investors or my royalties. Or yeah, whatever. whether or not I'm getting kickbacks or money from this. And 
I'm sorry, but I, you know, you can, you can have the, the biggest virtue signal in the world and, and talk about public health and all of this stuff. But at the end of the day, do you uh, get a kickback for this? Are you making money on this particular outcome? A lot of the climate change experts and things sure. like that. Yeah. It's, it's accepted science. This is, these are the accepted experts. But then you have experts within the field who are shunned from the rest of the experts. I mean, scientists against scientists. Joe Rogan has had a few on. Yeah. yeah. And so it is something where um, you've got this body of experts who are making a good amount of money over here doing what they're doing and convincing the public of, of what what they're convincing them of. And they're, it's basically kind of an economic yeah. setup where they're, they're trying to, you know, bar entry into the, yeah. the thought market yeah. and um, stop other ideas from coming in because other ideas will cause them to shrink and make less money or have less influence. And so they want to continue to promote what it is that they're, they've been pushing. So well, and this, this is the part where, people get very frustrated with this idea that, well, this bad information got put out there. It's like, okay, I get that. And you're never going to be able to stop that. You're never going to be able to stop bad information getting out. You can centralize what information gets out, but every society that we've seen that's attempted to do that, who's the centralized power that decides what's good information and bad? The government. And then ultimately what the government thinks is good information gets out. And it turns out that information validates whatever the politicians controlling the government are doing. It's like, this is, it's so Orwellian, but so obvious. And it's amazing to me, the number of people, there was recently an article, oh gosh, it was some New York magazine, I think, where they were talking about the need to, the need to regulate um, speech because, you know, big lies around politics, this is dangerous speech. And so we need to regulate, okay, who's going to regulate it? Oh, well, the government. Oh, so the people in power will now regulate the big lies of the people that are running against them? Like, you don't you don't see the obvious problem with that? And so, again... Well, I mean, the, the First Amendment was set up so that we could protect yeah. differing political viewpoints right. and speech well, and I, along those lines. And this goes, this goes to the other thing that happens frequently now. We see it all the time on our page. We see it on the time with our podcast. Like, oh, Nick, I didn't know you had a degree in economics. I don't. And like, th this is the part that, again, if you, if you don't like somebody's argument, typically what you should do is you should dissect the evidence that they use in order to come to a conclusion in order to demonstrate why either the evidence was flawed or the premise was flawed um, or the conclusion was flawed, right? That's the logical thought process that we use to distinguish between a good argument or good evidence and bad arguments and bad evidence. And the only way that you can really effectively do that is within an, a, a free market of thought and ideas and speech. And yet we have a lot of people coming in and their instant response when you say something they don't like is, oh, I didn't know you had a degree in that. Or I didn't know you were an expert in that. Oh, I love that. I didn't know you had a degree in economics. Paul Krugman has a degree in economics. Yeah. Well, the thing I like to go back with is, okay, why well, didn't – you're asking me a question right now. I didn't know you had a degree in journalism. Are you, are you qualified to interview me right now on this topic? <laughs> That's actually a great one. Be, because, because here's what it comes this, – this is what's known in logic as an appeal to authority fallacy. And an appeal to authority fallacy simply says that because someone is in a position of authority, now that could be you know, political authority, it could be academic authority, it could be you know, this realm of expertise, that because they've said something and because they're an expert, therefore that thing that they said is correct. It's like, no, no, in a logical world, when an expert, when a recognized expert says something, what that should mean is that there's a higher degree of probability that it will be correct. Right. That doesn't mean it's correct. And it certainly doesn't mean that because they said it as an expert, it's correct. And yet that's how it's being treated. And what's what I really find concerning is I see more and more younger people talking about these things, especially after COVID, especially the, the kids that really grew up during COVID formative years, is this idea of we have to trust the experts. No, <laughs> or, or we have to trust science. And what they mean by science is whatever the government approved scientists are saying about a particular topic. Science is not a person. Sorry, Dr. Fauci. Science is a process. It's a methodological process for trying to, you know, look at observable reality and come to conclusions, rational conclusions about why things happen and help us design responses to those things or predict what could potentially happen in the future. Right? That's what science is. It's a methodological process. But more and more, I'm seeing people treat it as if no, it's a, it's a person or it's an institution. And if they say it, therefore it's science 
or if they say it, therefore, it's fact. And that is a very, very dangerous way to look at the concept of expertise. Well, especially because when there's billions of dollars sloshing through the system in order to pay for whatever is recommended by these scientists, it's it's like it's a self-licking ice cream cone. Oh, you know, you've got this, it's just a vicious cycle. And nobody wants to follow the money. And I, I feel like there's certain fields where people go, oh, but this people in this field are there for entirely, you know, good wonderful, hearted good-hearted reasons. reasons, and they would never. They're not motivated right. by profit. They're not motivated They're by motivated that. motivated by public service. So, so they won't follow <laughs> the money. But when you're looking at the billions and billions of dollars that we're just sloshing through to get everybody jabbed right. and well, everything else, it's just, you're going, but then there's no difference between... Uh, they they continually will lie to the public or mislead the public and then are never held accountable for it. Why? Because they are a government entity. For some reason, when the government puts their experts into place, they're never held accountable for being wrong. Well, and that's a good point. I, I want to because I want to talk about that before we go into the the twenty times the experts got it sure. wrong because that's going to be a lot of fun. <laughs> You're not going to believe some of this stuff. But a lot of people say, well, okay, if you're, if you're motivated by profit, therefore, that's not good science. And, and really, what we, should, what we should take into consideration is because someone gets paid to do something does not mean they're bad at it, right? In most cases, it means they're good at it, especially if it's in the private sector. Because in the private sector, you tend to not get paid for something unless you have some sort of track record for producing positive results. Now, in the government sector, you can get paid all day for screwing things up regularly. Right. In, in certain academic sectors, you can get paid all day for screwing up things regularly. In fact, if you want a really good book on this, uh, Thomas Sowell's Intellectuals in Society, he, he does a great job looking at this. But the whole idea is, is that people will say, oh, no, you know, you, you complain about or, or I've had people get mad at me before. They're like, why don't you why don't you want the government to support science? I'm like, I, I think the government should support science. I think the best way to do it is to create a free and open environment where you protect people's property rights. You protect people's ability to you know, go out and experiment and share ideas. That's great. No, no, no. We want more funding. I'm like, OK, well, now if you're talking about more government funding for science, now what you're essentially doing is you're saying the government is going to prioritize the sort of science that is conducted and generally speaking, the sort of conclusions those scientists will come to. Yeah. Because you, you, don't, get to, you don't get to tell me that when, when the government says, hey, we're going to do, we're going to allocate a billion dollars for climate change research in order to, you know, blah, 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 blah. And they came up with all these policy objectives. And now we're going to issue that as a grant. Well, now I got a bunch of people competing for the grant. Who do you think is going to win the grant? Or, or do you think it's going to repeatedly win the grant? you know, year after year after year, is it going to be the people that come to the conclusions that the politicians wanted? Or is it going to be the people that maybe come to conclusions the politicians didn't want? Like this idea that that money just goes out there and all we want is the objective truth. Right. Spare me. The other thing yeah, is... If, is that, if your conclusion yeah. basically eliminates your job, there is a really bad oh, motivation there. there's a perverse there. incentive there. Right. And, and the other side is on the private sector. People will look at like, oh, you know, is, is private sector science better? Well, that's still being motivated by dollars because I need money to research. And, and the, the answer is both of them are capable of, of corruption, both of them, public sector and private sector. The difference with public sector is I'm not asking you before I take your money and then give it over to these guys. Well, and they can right? also continually be wrong, whereas the market will usually adjust quickly to an expert in the private sector being wrong. Yeah, if, if, if they're wrong, they pay the price immediately. Well, because a, a lot of a lot of what you see in private sector science is applied sciences, right? It, it's not just I, I want to define a new theory about this. It's how does the science you're conducting actually provide benefit to a good or a service? There's also or future profit. Let, let's yeah. also remember that that sometimes you have a motivation for something to happen a certain way. And so, therefore, you leverage your credentials in order to argue for it. Yeah. So a really good example of this was when Jerome Powell was out there saying inflation is going to be transitory. He knew that it wasn't transitory, but he was leveraging his position of, uh, as chairman of the Federal Reserve to argue that it was. And the reason why was because and, – and this isn't necessarily a bad thing. It was bad in one sense, but, but – the reason that he was trying to to mitigate concerns about inflation was because, in part, if the public expects inflation to kick in, 
well, then inflation will kick in. Yeah, uh, it, 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 prices will go up, and the and the purchasing power of the dollar will go down if people expect it to be so. This is what happened in the '70s because inflation was going on for so long that it, people just kind of baked it into their calculus of how to budget properly. And so Powell was trying to say, "Oh, inflation is transitory. We don't think it's going to be an issue." Trust me, I'm an expert. I'm the chairman of the Federal yeah. Reserve, even though he knew that was totally bogus because yeah. he was trying to mitigate people's concerns about it. Well, and that's. He was trying but to, to tamp down panic. Yeah. Yes, that doesn't change the fact, though, that he was wrong. Yeah. Now, he was trying to do some PR stunt in yeah. order to stop a panic from happening at the same time that he was planning on, on ramping up rate hikes. What he thought was going to happen was the Federal Reserve was going to raise interest rates to get rid of inflation yeah. before the public could catch on that it was going to happen. Yeah. And none of that worked out at all, yeah. right? His whole plan blew up in his face. But- but and he's it, not paying the price, really. And he's not paying the price exactly. at all for it. And, and he wasn't just wrong. He was purposefully wrong. Oh, he well, he was also the guy who was in many cases responsible for the inflation in the first right. place. So it, it, this goes back to, I love bringing this up from Thomas Sowell, right? The, the, you know, you're putting power in the hands of people who pay no price for being yeah. wrong. Jerome Powell literally paid no price for being wrong on the inflation thing. And there, there's so many examples of this. I know that you've got a giant list that we're going to get to. But, like, it's... It's worth bringing that up before we start going into any of these quotes that like the motivations for why the experts are wrong could vary between the circumstances. Yeah. But that doesn't change the fact that there's so many instances where people in positions of authority say things that are incorrect. Some sometimes maybe because they're trying to do something good yeah. and they're trying to stop a panic, but that doesn't change the fact that their pronouncements are not true. Yeah. And that doesn't mean that we should take what they're saying at face value. No, and, and in fact, I think the, the important thing to remember, and, and that is a good point, and we had this conversation once on predicting stuff in politics um, because you were looking at it from a very like kind of outside objective, this is what the data says. And I was looking at it from, from the perspective of, hey, I, like we're trying to win this race. <laughs> and, and, um, and, and again, it's one of those things where Somebody can have good, somebody can be in a position of authority and have good intentions and put something out that they hope is true or that they hope will work. But like you said, they're using their expertise to try to, to try to, you know, manipulate a situation. And that's why, that's why no matter who the expert is, there's always a, like, you can never surrender your own logic to the experts, right? right? Because if, if an expert truly is an expert, they don't mind the scrutiny, if they're confident in what they believe, they don't mind the scrutiny. The point. moment they're like, we need to shut you down because what you said is is contradicting what I've said. That's the person that automatic, your red flags need to go up. Your red flags need to go up right away and say, there's something about this that I potentially cannot trust. Not because they don't have a PhD, not because they don't have experience within a particular field, but because their main avenue for ensuring the dominance of their position or argument is to shut down their competition. That's what should throw up red flags instantaneously. All right. I want to move on to this 20 examples. I'm looking forward to examples. this. 20 examples. All right. All right. Here we go. Um, this one comes from Harvard. Bio. This was made around 1970. Uh, so a lot of these are actually made in conjunction with the first Earth Day. Not all of them, but a lot of them. So Harvard biologist George Walt. So right off the bat, right? Harvard, he's a biologist. So you're thinking, okay, that's some credibility with respect to an environmental issue. And Harvard, right? One of the premier universities in the world. Harvard, Harvard biologist George Wald estimated that civilization will end within 15 or 30 years unless immediate action is taken against problems facing mankind. Now, let's look at a couple of things with that statement. We look at that now like, okay, that seems super ridiculous. Now, in 1970, you had... A lot of, you know, bad predictions with respect to the environment, but you also had, like, you know, the Soviet Union, the United States. Well, I was about to say, he, no, no, no. He, I don't know why we have this on the list. He was totally right. The <laughs> Soviet Union was an existential problem facing mankind, and it was dealt with yeah. within 15 to 30 years of that prediction being made. <laughs> I, don't think that's what he, I don't think that's what he meant, though. <laughs> well, I mean, the same type of predictions are being made now. I mean, you've got, like, five years ago, the all these students were in – you know, harassing, what was her name? Was It wasn't Barbara Diane Box. Feinstein. Diane Feinstein saying the the world is going to end in 12 years, yeah. 12 years. And it's like, well, years. it's been, it's been five. We've, all, we've well, only they, got. They'll always come back. And, you know, I had a buddy of mine that he used to say, he goes, watch Nick. He goes, they're just going to come back in 20 years and say, we did it. 
we did it. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, exactly. Uh, because if you look at what he's saying here, civilization will end within 15 or 30 years. Well, first if. of all, you've doubled your projection, right? I, I'm right. always a little bit skeptical when somebody says this could happen in two to 400 years or <laughs> three to five billion years. Like, okay, that's that's a little bit of margin error. He goes, unless immediate action is taken against problem face. Okay, what are the immediate actions? What immediate actions? What immediate actions need to take place that is going to prevent the wholesale wiping out of civilization in well, 30 well, years? Well, they never quite vocalize the the specifics of the immediate yeah. actions so that whatever action is taken solves the problem. So that, that was an, yeah, exactly. So that was an academic expert. Here we go. Private sector expert. Ken Olson, president, chairman, and founder of Digital Equipment Corp, made this statement in 1977. There is no reason anyone would want a computer in their home. <laughs> wow. <laughs> like, we now, say this with four computers on this yeah, desk yeah. right and now. And he was the maker of big big business mainframe computers. Yep. Arguing against the PC in 1977. So again, what what was his incentive structure? He what was, was happening in 1977? He was, was Microsoft selling, was Microsoft open then? Uh, well, you had like the eight. Uh, a lot more of like the smaller computers were starting to emerge on the market in the 80s. Um, but you you had people theorizing because again. You, these large computers that were used like during the space program. Oh, they took up like an entire room. Oh, yeah. And so is this. Uh, but this guy was making big business mainframe computers. He's, getting, he's having to get investors for what he's trying to do. Right. And people are probably asking, well, what about these new smaller computers or home computers? No, no, no. That's not a big deal. Um, all right. Let's look at this one. Oh, gosh. This guy is one of my favorite. And he appears on this list several times. Okay. Uh, Paul, El Paul Ulrich. This guy is like the he's the, he's like the the Malthus of our time, like predicting doom and gloom. He goes, population will inevitably completely outstrip whatever small increases in food supplies we make. He confidently declared in April 1970 issue of Mademoiselle, the death rate will increase until at least 100 to 200 million people per year will be starving to death in the next 10 years. So he made this he made this prediction in the 70s. Yeah, April 1970. The death rate will increase until at least 100 to 200 million people per year will be starving to death during the next 10 years. So not only did that not happen, we had like massive population explosion as well. And resources. Yeah. Um, well, and now government entities are so confident with the su food supply that they're trying to cut the su food supply I down. I mean, yeah. in many ways he could not have been more wrong because the problem that we now have is population declines mostly in western developed countries where the birth rate has has just completely fallen yeah. off a cliff um elon musk expert talks about this yeah. all the time no no that, that's not to say that it's true yeah I, in fact don't even take my word for it because i'm not an expert on demographics but well they but, were saying it's simple math but but ju just look at the birth rates um yeah. but i i do the, notice how some of these arguments the solution that's always implicitly or in some cases explicitly presented is massive government control over yeah. yep. society. Because if I recall, Paul Ehrlich advocated for all sorts of like, I think he himself described it as, as various forms of coercion, um, like, like population controls and taxes on people having additional, like, like he would have been thrilled with like China's one, one child policy yeah. or something like that. Yeah. And yeah, that's just something to keep in mind with some of these predictions that a lot of the people throwing them out, like they or their acolytes have a solution in mind. And that solution is never free markets and individual liberty. No. It, it never is. No, no. All right. Let's look at this next one. Let's, uh, so that was, that was academic, uh, experts. Let me see here. Let's go to, uh, I want to pick another one here. All right. All right, this one I want to I want to ask the uh, I want to ask uh, everyone here at the table. Don't don't read the notes. Don't read the notes. All right, the London Times in 1894 predicted that London would be buried under nine feet of what? I can't answer this one. I know this one. You told me yesterday. All right, we what do you, what is it? So. The 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 date gave it away. Horse okay. manure. Horse manure. That's right. Why so did the, the date give it away? Wait, horse manure? Or just manure in general? Oh, okay. He's a manure in general, but it was it was it was because of horses. Oh. But it was in 1894 predicted that basically 50 years later, 56 yeah. years later, it would be covered under nine feet of manure. They, they the reason why the population was growing because of the Industrial Revolution. More people, that, needed, carriages more people needed carriages and horses. And they predicted it based off of what was currently going on without 
anticipating future innovation technology changes they thought that by the 1940s and 50s they would still be riding around in horses and carriages in london and by the 1940s and 50s there were no more horses and carriages in london well there there were a couple for for tourist reasons but that was it well and this this just goes to show too and now they've replaced manure with water and they're they're going to say that we're going to be covered in water because of climate change (laughs) well the, the the interesting part is that a lot of these guys when they make these like incredible predictions they also don't take it. They, they assume that the current state of technology, innovation, that's going to remain constant. That's going to stay. And As then, if anything ever remains constant oh, yeah. for that long. Yeah. Right. Although we did, I mean, things really did explode in this the past century. Yeah. I mean, we really did come so far. Yeah. yeah. As, as we said before, we went from inventing flight or discovering flight with yeah. the White Wright brothers to within one lifetime yeah. landing on the moon. Yeah, that's incredible. Wow. That's incredible. It like it was like less than less than 80 years between the Wright brothers. No, less than 70 years mm-hmm. between the Wright brothers and man walking on the moon. And that's incredible. Um that's if you believe that really <laughs> happened. <laughs> All right, here we go. I want to know, okay, this is from Decca Recording Company in 1962, and I want you guys to guess who they were talking about. We don't like their sound, and guitar music is on the way out. The Beatles. <laughs> I think the 1962 gave it away. Yeah, yeah. It was about the Beatles. Decca Recording Company said that about the Beatles in 1962. Yeah, and the Beatles were a total flop. And they're like experts. <laughs> yeah. they're, they're experts, <laughs> They know man. everything about music. Yeah, they're experts. Yeah. All right, Dennis Hayes, the chief organizer for Earth Day in the spring of 1970 issue of The Living Wilderness, said it is already too late to avoid mass starvation. Now, again, keep, keep in mind that when Malthus was making these similar predictions like or, or in the 1800s, like the population of the world in, the, in 1800 was a little over a billion people, and about 80 to 90% of them were living in extreme poverty, right? And you look at the, the state of technology and everything else that date, that's why they were saying, oh my gosh, we're seeing you know, exponential population growth, but we can only grow so much food, and, and what are we going to do? Okay, well, in, in 2020... There was 7 billion people, but only 20% of them were living in extreme poverty. So the exact opposite happened with what they were predicting. And, and again, as, as Christian pointed out, and this is very important to understand, with a lot of the academic or political experts, not, so much, not as much with the private sector, but to some degree, uh, with a lot of the um, private sector, or, or excuse me, public sector experts, government sector experts, and academic experts, what they're almost always advocating for is they're, they're projecting out a problem they're showing you data based off of long-term models w- without a great deal of insight into how technology is going to change. And then they're always advocating for more government control. Almost always advocating for more government control. All right, here we go. Let's, I uh, love this one, actually. The greatest expert of all time in many ways. Yeah, here we go. I, in fact, we're going to ask, we're going to put out there who said this. There is not the slightest indication that nuclear energy will ever be attainable it would mean that the atom would have to be shattered at will. Who said that? Albert Einstein. Albert Einstein in 1932. Arguably the smartest man to have ever existed. I mean, he I mean, he he was also wrong about quantum mechanics. He yeah. he wrote that paper, I think it was like the EPR um uh on thesis where he he argued that quantum mechanics was like incomplete and in in large part because he thought it was incompatible with general relativity and he ended up yeah. being wrong about that as well. He, he, like, mocked the whole, oh, I'd like to believe the moon is there um, even when I don't look at it. And, like, and again, smartest person ever. Yeah. Um, and yet one of the, the most revolutionary things that, that was ever discovered in the field of physics, he dismissed it almost completely and spent, yeah. like, almost his entire later half of his life, like, trying to disprove quantum mechanics or argue that yeah. it was an incomplete field. And and yet we still hold him up in extremely high regard today, and right. in many cases, rightfully so. But oh, yeah. it, it just it, it, it just gets to the point that you might have a hot maybe a higher degree of being being correct in your pronouncements as an expert, at least if you're within the field that you're in. I would not trust Albert Einstein to give me any advice when it comes to the real estate market. Yeah, <laughs> but like that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be right 100 percent of the time. Yeah, let's go to another one by Paul Ehrlich. Oh my gosh, him again. And again, this is amazing because this guy is still held up as someone to listen to. Like, please understand when we read these off, and and you'll notice that Paul shows up here quite a bit. 
He's one of these academic experts. To this day, he is someone that people will go to and say, well, you know, Paul Orwell said he sketched out his most alarming scenario for the 1970 Earth Day issue of The Progressive, assuring readers that between 1980 and 1989, some 4 billion people, including 65 million Americans, would perish in the great die-off. So in the 80s, he was predicting that 65 million Americans, which at that point I think was something like, what, 25% of the population um, of the United States, probably close to that, would die in, the, in, the, in again, the great die-off because of you know climate alarmism. How many global. was it? He said 65 million. So what was the total population of the U.S.? That's a quarter, almost so a quarter, third. about 25%, yeah. yeah. All right, um, here's another great one. Oxford professor Aramis Wilson in 1878 said, when the Paris exhibition closes, electric light will close with it and no more will be heard of it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, that might be my favorite one. Out of, I, no, I've never heard next, that. The next one's your favorite. Admit it. Uh, in fact, Chris, I'm, I'm going to give you the honor of reading off this next one. Oh, man. This is In from, fact, don't, don't tell the name. Just a, okay. a Nobel Prize winning economist. Nobel Prize winner has has multiple degrees. Degrees in economics, too. Yes, yes. Um, uh. He said, and this is in 1998, this is an actual quote. In fact, this is such an insane quote that people don't believe it's an actual yeah. quote. Yeah. It is. He said in 1998, the growth of the internet will slow, um, will, um, will slow drastically as the flaw in Metcalfe's law, which states that the number of potential connections in a network is proportional to the square of the number of participants becomes apparent. Most people have nothing to say to each other. By 2005 or so, it will become clear that the Internet's impact on the economy has been no greater than the fax machines. And who was it? It was our good old friend Paul Krugman. Paul Krugman. Who to this day is heralded as yeah. an expert in the field of economics. And by the way, that is is the most obvious obvious wrong thing that he said but i mean yeah. this is the guy that was still in just a few years ago was like there's no fed induced bubble in the markets yeah. there's no the real problem is we're we're under threat of deflation yeah this is this is paul like, krugman nobel and again if he's a, if you if you describe if you define expertise in 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 almost purely academic means, which is to say that he has the appropriate degrees he has the appropriate awards he's written the appropriate papers he's an expert but if you look at it as how have his predictions played out, especially the more like, you know, ones that he's kind of famous for, he gets it wrong repeatedly. And then what's really interesting is that if you go back, he will write articles within a year to two years of each other and be on both sides of the issue and then just reference his work on the one that he got right. And, and it's, it's just amazing. It's just amazing. Okay, here's another one. Um, Harrison Brown, a scientist at the National Academy of Science, published a chart in Scientific American that looked at metal reserves and estimated that humanity would totally run out of copper shortly after 2000 and lead, zinc, tin, gold, and silver would be gone before 1990. Now, again, this is another one of those areas where he's looking at current known reserves and making predictions. They do the same thing with, with oil all the time. We're going to run out of oil by based off of current levels of consumption and known reserves until we find more reserves or until we find ways to be more efficient. Like people adapt. All right, here's another one. Let's go through this a little bit quicker. Lord Kelvin, president of the Royal Society in 1883 said x-rays will prove to be a hoax. <laughs> mm -hmm. All right. Um, Senator Gaylord Nelson wrote in Look that Dr. S. Dylan Ripley, secretary of the Smithsonian Institute, believes that in 25 years, somewhere between 75 and 80% of all the species of living animals will be extinct. Kenneth Watt warmed about a pending ice age. <laughs> this is in the 70s. The world has been chilling sharply for about 20 years. If present trends continue, the world would be about 4 degrees colder for the global mean temperature in 1990, but 11 degrees colder in the year 2000. This is about twice what it would take to put us into an ice age. Well, he did cover himself by saying, if present trends continue. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Malthus, uh, again, Malthus is the one we talked about. He's kind of the original, you know, doomsday guy on, on this stuff. Instead of recommending cleanliness to the poor, we should encourage contrary habits. In our towns, we should make the streets narrower, crowd more people into the houses, and court the return of the plague. That was how Malthus was going to deal with population hey, This booms. sounds like leftists right now wanting high-density housing. Yeah. Okay, here's another one by, again, our good old friend Paul Elric. 
I would take even money that England will not exist in the year 2000. It'll just be Thanos snapped away, right? <laughs> oh, yeah, here's a good one. I love this one. We will never make a 32-bit operating system. Bill Gates. The man who makes a 64-bit operating <laughs> yeah. system. I mean, he proved himself wrong in some ways. Like, yeah. Here's another good, here's a government expert. Here's another government expert that I love. Uh, T. Craven, FCC commissioner in 1961, said, there is practically no chance communication space satellites will be used to provide better telephone, telegraph, television, or radio service inside the United States. That was the head of the SCC. Oh, Lord Kelvin, another one from Lord Kelvin, British mathematician and physicist, president of the British Royal Society, said in 1895, Heavier-than-air flying machines are impossible. Now, keep in mind, keep in mind, less than 80 years later, Kel- we'd Kelvin be walking also, on the moon. Kelvin also said that there was only 400 years of oxygen left. I, I kind of <laughs> wonder how he could say something like that when he's probably physically actually seen birds, and birds are heavier than air. So, why? That's actually a really good point now that I think about it. I, he said machine. <laughs> I mean, he, but he's equating all of it down to weight. Yeah. Okay, um, there we go. Sir William Priest, chief engineer of the British Post Office, said that Americans have need of the telephone, but we do not. We have plenty of messenger boys. <laughs> <laughs> because we are the British aristocracy. He said that in 1878. All right, and here is, we're, we're rounding it up with this one because I just love this one. Charles Duell, commissioner of the U.S. Office of Patents, said in 1899, Everything that can be invented has been invented. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I remember that know. one. These are your government and these are your government uh, academic and private sector you experts. You know, it's interesting because these that the one back a little bit about the telephone and the messenger boys, I would not be surprised if there weren't people saying they're going to put these messenger boys out of, out of business work. and they're going to yeah. starve in the streets yeah. if we get this new technology. I've got a, um, I, I've got a couple ones from my good friend Jim Kramer. Okay. Um, who is so popular for being so wrong so many times. He's, yeah. he's the host of Mad Money on CNBC. Yeah. Um, he, he makes these like pronouncements and then they end up being like the exact opposite happens. And it, yeah. it's so repeatable that there's literally a Twitter account that's called the Inverse Kramer ETF that just tells <laughs> you to invest in the opposite of what he's saying. <laughs> and it's actually up this year. It's up like 22% year to date. Oh, wow. At, at the same time, the market's down. But like um, there's two... There's two quotes from from Jim Cramer that I think are are like incredible. Um, one was from July 2020, where Jim Cramer said, "I'm sick and tired of hearing that we're in a bubble and that Jerome Powell's overinflating the price of stocks by printing money to keep the economy moving." <laughs> that was literally exactly what was happening yeah. at the time. Yeah. So that's the first one, and the more famous one, probably the single most famous one. I actually sent Hamilton the link to it. Um, uh, if, if we don't want to play it here, that's fine. But, um, it was March 11th, 2008. It was an episode of mad money. And, uh, Jim Cramer was talking about, there, there was a thing that happened in 2008, by the way. Oh yeah. yeah. Um, bit of a housing bubble. Uh, Jim Cramer was asked about what was going on in, um, the financial sector. And he ended up, uh, being asked about, uh, Bear Stearns. Okay. (laughs) And and he ended up saying, um, uh, you know, don't pull your money out of Bear Stearns. Bear Stearns is fine. (laughs) And are are you actually? Okay. And it was literally nine days later that Bear Stearns went under. (laughs) (laughs) He said, don't pull your money out of Bear Stearns. It's fine. Well, I I remember when, um, oh gosh, who was the Congress? Barney Frank. Barney Frank, because they were, it was Chris Dodd and Barney Frank were the ones that were like just pumping up the the real estate market with these, it was the um, subprime mortgages. It was Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac because there was a public-private partnership. They were creating just massive perverse incentives within the economy. And it was interesting because some people were getting mad at a lot of like the private sector, you know, banks and, and the real estate market and whatnot. And some of it was justified because some of them were lobbying for all these this money because they knew they'd get the bailout. But the other thing is, is that when the government creates a perverse incentive within the marketplace, it, it actually can be damaging to you as a business if you don't participate. Um, not only because of the, the short-term economic gains that are created in, in that time for a particular industry, but also because 
People like Jimmy Carter, Bill Clinton, what they weren't just saying, we want you to do these subprime mortgages. They were saying, and if you don't, we will investigate you for denying loans to certain groups. Right? They were they were basically saying you're 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 denying loans because you're racist. Wow. And so we're gonna require this, but then we're also gonna set up this exchange with Franny May and Freddie Mac to where now they were handing all these subprime mortgages and the private sector banks was like, these are not good mortgages. So what would they do? They'd bundle them up, right? And then they'd sell those mortgages to somebody else. Well, who bought it? Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. And what were they buying it with? In part, public dollars, tax dollars. Wow. So it, it, the reason I say this is because Barney Frank then came back. He was quoted as saying, we want to roll the dice a little longer on this. And then the housing market tanked and you had all these people losing their homes. You, I mean, it was horrible. And then they went right back. Who do you think they came back to to fix it? Barney Frank and Chris Dodd. Yeah. Because they yelled the loudest about, this is wrong, and I can't believe the banks are doing it. Well, everyone was really mad at the banks. right? And there was some good reason to be mad at them. Everyone was really mad at the banks. But the banks were actually responding to what Chris Dodd and Barney Frank had essentially either legally required or incentivized them to do. And then Barney Frank and Chris Dodd come out and be like, oh, we're going to fix this. This is this is unacceptable. That's always the way they what, do. What's that scene from The Boys where one of the guys like does something bad, but like he comes up and everyone's cheering and is like, oh, all right, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's like he's the one like responsible for I, – I, I haven't seen the show, but i just seen that one the clip, and it's kind of funny. But um, anyway, so that's our – actually, I think we had 21 examples in there, so you got a bonus example. We got a bonus in there. Well, Nick, here's the question there. I have. Yeah. Should we just ignore the experts? No. <laughs> this is the part where, again, the pendulum always swings, right? You have some people the, – the extreme on one side is trust the experts. What's an expert? I don't know. Somebody with a PhD that says things that sounds good to me, right? No, you shouldn't do that. Yeah. And then the other side is you shouldn't trust any of these people. Like, no. <laughs> Expertise is valuable. The, the extreme on the opposite end, to give you an idea, is um, the CDC recommends washing your hands. Yeah, yeah. I will never wash my hands ever again. <laughs> yeah, that would yeah. be like the extreme opposite. Yeah. Hey, you should br your, brush your yeah. teeth. You mean like Hitler who the, brushed his the teeth? Experts, <laughs> the, 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 the experts who were wrong on COVID also recommended brushing your teeth at least once a day. Yeah. I'm never going to do that. Like, <laughs> it, it, well, I remember, I, I'm old enough to remember when uh, Dr. Fauci was saying you're more likely to catch COVID if you wear a mask because yeah. you'll be adjusting it and touching it all the time. Yeah. And that was all because they want there was a mask shortage at that point, yeah. and they wanted to save well, all those masks for medical and professionals. Said. And then once the market responded and all of these masks were made, they were like, well, how dare you not wear a mask? You want grandma to die. Yeah. No, it's so it, – it, look, it's like anything else. Expertise can be valuable. Expertise sure. can be horribly wrong. Thomas Sowell has this quote where he said, it seems like every major disaster in American history has a Harvard man behind it, right? Because experts do have the ability of, of using the influence that they do as a result of their, their acknowledged expertise to make really bad decisions, either based off of incomplete information or um, because they have some sort of motivation that we might not know about that is influencing them. And so really what it comes down to is it, you, you, can, you can pick the experts that you think have a good track record of being correct. And then you can use them as a heuristic, right? You can use them as a shortcut. Like, okay, I don't have time. I don't have time to study open heart surgery. So if I need an open heart surgery, I'm going to go to somebody that has a lot of expertise and experience successfully providing open heart. Now, there might be, if I have two open heart surgeons, right? If I have two, two surgeons... And, and one of them has got multiple PhDs and has been in the university for the past 30 years. And the other one is narrowly focused on performing heart surgery, and they've been performing heart surgery for the next 30 years. We can have a debate on which one of those people is, is more of an expert, but I'll tell you the one I want performing my heart surgery is the one that's been doing it for the last 30 years. So it, there's a good combination. Again, this goes into another Thomas Sowell quote where he says, one of the dumbest things that you can do is put decisions in the hands of people that pay no price for being wrong. And so it's important to look at when somebody is offering up advice, what price do they pay for being wrong? What is their level of expertise? Is it a very narrow field that they're now using to try to influence a broader field? Or do they have a track record of being consistently correct and also humble enough to understand that their level of expertise doesn't mean that they can automatically impose decisions on hundreds of millions, if not billions right. of people? And are so, there perverse incentives well, yeah. to come to a specific conclusion? I just thought about this. Even the heart surgeon yeah. has to carry medical malpractice insurance. Yeah. Because if they mess something up, 
Well, and, and again, they're if, responsible if, for if you it. say, if you're a heart surgeon and I need brain surgery, are you the right person to talk to? No. No, you may know basic fundamentals of surgery, surgery that apply equally. Like things like you got to wash your hands, you got to right. scrub up, you got to be in a sanitary room, you got to use these sorts of tools. But that doesn't mean that their, their expertise in one narrow field of medicine does not convey expertise across all fields of medicine. Right. Yeah. And look, the same applies to us sitting at this table and anyone watching this. Right, you you should like what we have to say on a topic or take it as being meaningful, you know, understanding what our relative expertise is in the room, but ultimately is do the arguments that we make make sense? Are they logically consistent? Right. Are they largely are they are they logically um, reasonable? And is is the evidence and data that we use to justify our conclusions, right? Does it does it play out in reality? And then the, the third thing that I would say is also look at what are people suggesting based off. You're going to notice that in almost every conclusion we come to, we err on the side of let individuals have as much evidence and, and information and access as possible, whether it be to the market, whether it be to information, and then let them make their own decisions. Now, we will have suggestions from time to time on what we think is the best decision or course of action. But you'll notice we're never advocating shutting down somebody else's ability to contradict us or to right. disagree with us, nor are we suggesting that you should do something exclusively because I, Nick Freitas, said so. Yeah. It's also worth noting that nobody at this table is advocating for giving us more power yeah. over people's no. individual lives. The opposite. And we even it's have an elected politician in the room. And we have somebody who, who has the ability to advocate for that if, yeah. he, if he so wanted. And we're not getting money in order to come up right. with a certain conclusion. To, to tell people. Well, here, here's the question that I have regarding the subject. Obviously, we've seen this, you know, trust experts uh, be challenged within the political space, especially around COVID. But where else do y'all see this playing out in just everyday life when it comes to questioning authority? I mean, I gave the example of Jim Cramer earlier. Yeah. And, and I mean, like, that was something to close to my heart personally. Right. And so, like, that's an example. I, I think there's so many examples in the markets and in the broader economy, I know that we've talked mostly about the government sector, but I, like there's so many examples. I, I brought this up at the beginning of this podcast that like people who, because they're successful themselves or because they have degrees in certain fields, they then make pronouncements about what they think is going to happen to the broader economy. And it's not just that they're going to make pronouncements about predictions. They will sometimes offer policy yeah. solutions, right. so to speak. And those solutions almost always involve more power and that it's 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 like here's an example plato's ideal form of government yeah. was shockingly yeah uh philosopher kings yes who who ended up ruling all of society yeah like is it really any surprise that yeah. plato one of the greatest philosophers of all time said oh man philosophers should be the ones running the world <laughs> yeah. like it Neil deGrasse Tyson thinks yes. scientists should be the that, one. But, the but that doesn't that doesn't necessarily mean that Plato's an idiot. Yeah. Right? That doesn't mean that there's no value to be to be obtained from reading Plato or following any of his advice. Like there's plenty of things that he writes about that are great. They, I mean, we still read his works thousands of years later. But nobody's out there saying, yeah, we we need we need people like Plato to be running everything. Yeah. Like, like there's we we just need to to realize that that sometimes people who appear to be experts or might actually be experts in certain fields that, that are, are, are worthy of, of, of respect in certain, in certain areas. A, that doesn't mean that they're right hundred percent of the time. And B, that doesn't mean that they themselves might not have some personal motives or interests in pushing right. for certain positions or policies that might be beneficial to them or their yeah. positions. Well, I think the beautiful thing about the free market is that it allows everyone to be experts in individual areas and they can succeed in those individual areas, but that expertise may not be transferable to another area. And therefore you hire other people who are experts in those areas. But when you try and bring all these experts into a government agency, when they've only been an expert or educated in one area and then try and extrapolate that experience out to multiple things, it doesn't work. But the free market says there's a better way of doing it. Well, yeah, again, Thomas Sowell, again, used to say that one of the big problems of putting the hands, like concentrating the power in the hands of a few people is that even if they're the smartest people with access to all the data, they still don't have a fraction mm -hmm. of the consequential knowledge that goes into everyday decisions that billions of people are making right. across the globe. So, yeah, if you want to treat people like they're nothing more than a column on an Excel spreadsheet, 
you can potentially predict out what they need, what they want, and what sort of organization or production would be necessary to achieve it. The problem is you can't effectively do that. And Ever. so you end up you end up making massive problems and creating shortages. And, and a lot of times what happens is once the people have that sort of power to make those sorts of decisions, they want to keep it. And the things that they're willing to do to keep it and the things that they're willing to justify to keep it become increasingly horrific. So I'm going to leave everybody with one last thought on this, and that's this. The answer is not to throw out expertise. The answer is to understand where an expert is coming from, what their experience is, what their education is, before you just take whatever they say for granted. The other thing that I would, I would tell everybody to do, whenever you're gauging an expert's opinion on a particular topic, ask yourself this. Is the conclusion that they regularly come to concentrating power in the hands of a relatively small number of people that look and think just like them. If it is, you should be wary of that. Yep. All right. Well, if you found this episode helpful, if you found one of the examples we use to be incredibly insightful uh, or surprising, please let us know on social media or in our volley chat. Also, if you think we got it wrong, let us know that as well, because unlike some other areas, we will never try to shut down dissenting opinion. Once again, thank you for watching and we'll see you next episode. Once again, thank you very much for listening. If you want to support the show, again, one of the best ways you can do it is by heading over to GoodRanchers.com with promo code Nick. You're going to get $15 off. You sign up for one of those subscriptions, and you're going to get up to $480 of free meat with that subscription. You get to pick top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, bacon. It is all up to you. Plus, if you're looking for gifts to get for the people that are impossible to shop for, GoodRanchers.com also has gift boxes. You need to act quick. This is part of their overall Black Friday special. So head on over to GoodRanchers.com, use promo code Nick, and once again, thank you for listening.